black 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 What is up, everybody? My name is James DeFiori, and this is Blackballed. I had a crazy month. The month was weird. I think I could talk about this now because, um, well, it's over. I was the co-chair of a candidate. I'm gonna so I, just so I can tell the story. I'm not gonna say where, um, and I'm not gonna name the person, um, mostly because he still owes me money, but. I was the co-chair of a mayoral campaign in a fairly decent township, I guess you would say, whatever, in Ontario. And I learned uh, a bunch of stuff about politics by working on that campaign. One is that you could be a day-drinking imbecile who literally can't, you know, fill out a form at a hotel in order to secure his room. Like he, he, like, just imagine Rob Ford, but just not as intelligent, right? And this person that I was the co-chair for, um, he would ghost the campaign for like days on end. And, and we got in there late. And I swear to you, this story doesn't have a point. But we got hired really late and like six months late like the guy who won the mayoral election in this town started six months before we did so he threw this last minute team together and to my credit i got one smarter than me who ran an agency to really like build a, a campaign machine for this guy and then i wrote all of his poll like all of it like he thought policy was a bullet point that was just like improve public transit like that was that's what he thought policy was and he was a counselor for eight years nothing but the best in this country, we have a leadership deficit. Uh, actually, we're, we're bankrupt in the realm of leadership in this country. But he, I, so I wrote his policy. I crafted an image for him. I oversaw the the rebrand of the logo for the campaign. You know, and we, we turned a staunch conservative who had a reputation of being like a Ford-like conservative. And we softened him. We got him to support things like safe injection sites, and we got him to, um, you know, uh, come up with some sort of like feasible solution for the homeless problem in this place. And it was going great. Um, one time, a reporter asked me a question that was about city planning, and it was specific. It was about really, it was about builders and the downtown and sprawl and all that kind of stuff, and. I made a mistake and answered the wrong reporter the wrong question. So I uh, I sent like a 200 word answer about safe injection sites to an urban planning question. And it became like the top news item of that day about this candidate like softening and it was going great. And then all of a sudden he went to a religious retreat um, without, without telling anyone. And when he came back, he said, 
yeah, I'm, I'm done. I'm done with you guys. It's like a week before the election. I'm, I'm done with you guys. Uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to run on my own now and keep in mind, he's a day drinker. Like he, he, all he does is just jump from restaurant to restaurant, pretends to have meetings and drink scotch and beer. That, that's what he does. And so he dumped his entire campaign staff a week before the election and then finished an abysmal fourth. Um, you know, and he was doing fairly well under the circumstances of being a complete Neanderthal. He was doing fairly well up until that point. Um, the reason why I'm telling you this is because sometimes in life, um, the universe, whatever the fuck that is, will deal you a hand that includes awful people. But sometimes the universe says, and eh, we'll give you we'll give you an awesome person too. Karima Sad joins us. Karima. That was a great intro. Thank you. Thank you. I, I didn't know what I was gonna do until I started talking. You made the segue, it was like perfection. Yeah, I would you know why the story was so long? In my mind, I'm like, how am I gonna segue out of this? <laughs> I honestly did like and then I was like, he's a horrible person. An awesome person is waiting backstage. Ding, ding, ding. Okay, now we go. And here we are. Um, what does your shirt say? Because you always wear cool shirts. This never one give says up. never give up. What is the photo or the picture? Uh, it's John Cena delivering <laughs> one of his wrestling moves. Oh, I thought you were going to say a baby. It's like, okay. <laughs> never give up. Uh, John Cena. Is John Cena here? We need to deliver this baby. That'd be amazing. <laughs> What a moonlighting position that would be. Um, I invited you like, what, a couple hours ago to come on the podcast tonight. I had a guest cancel and I just was in the mood to have a to have a dope conversation. So I went to your Twitter just to see what you were up to. And I want to start here because uh, we both have history with this um, really trailblazing establishment in Toronto. Um, sorry, I've been out of Toronto for a long time. So now I pronounce the second T. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but the Hotbox Cafe in Kensington Market, mm-hmm. um, I used to live uh, on Spadina Circle. So I was like, you know, a two minute walk away from the greatest coffee place ever on the corner of Augusta and, and Baldwin. Um, I don't even know what it's called to this day, but I, I went there for like a decade, <laughs> like every day. I was still going uh, and picking up the daily newspaper. Um, you know, in like 2003, 2004. Mm-hmm. And uh, my routine was to walk from Spadina Circle down to the cafe. On the way back, I'd go to the, the, the Smart Bank or whatever that variety store is called um, and, and get my newspaper and then sit outside and read the newspaper and drink my coffee. And by the time the coffee was done, uh, the anxiety just took over because I felt like a failure and I had no money. <laughs> somehow I always found money for the coffee and the paper, but otherwise I was completely broke all the time. Um, but the Hotbox Cafe was a, a place where you could go and smoke weed like, what, 15 years at least before it was legalized? It was just one of those things. And it happens in cities like Vancouver often. It doesn't really happen in Toronto that much. Where something completely countercultural and technically illegal will just open up and people just leave it alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know of any uh, many places like that in Toronto. Do, are you aware of any places like that other than Well, that right now there's a store on Queen Street that I believe is selling mushrooms. Uh, so Can I please have the number of this establishment, Karim? <laughs> I posted like a tweet about it a while ago. Um, I, I might live in an area of the high, most highly concentrated 
like geographically um dispensaries on the reserve that also sell shrooms there's like 14 within a 20 minute drive from where i am right now that sounds ideal uh, for you it does. And finally, that whole the universe provides is starting to make sense. Like I'm starting to understand and come around to that idea, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, so give me I want to hear your history of the, the Hot Box Cafe because you kind of kind of made me feel a little bit nostalgic. You just sort of blurbed out a sentence and I, I was immediately transported back. Um, so mm -hmm. what, what was your vibe like with that place? And when did you start going there? Um, so I went there from, I think my first time there was 2015. Um, and then I was like a daily, near daily regular um, from 2016 to 2019. Um, and it was kind of a period of flux for me in my life. Um, when I started becoming a regular, I wasn't quite finished my articles, um, which uh, for those who are fortunate to not be in the legal industry, it's a placement um, prior to becoming called as a lawyer. Um, so that was like a hurdle that I still had to overcome in order to get my license. I wasn't even sure that I wanted to finish. I was in like this uh, existential crisis of sorts. Um, but, you know, I did. I pulled through. Uh, and basically, I launched my legal career um, from the hotbox. Um, oh, really? Spent time there kind of planning it out and then it was my relaxation sort of spot it's right around the corner from my office um so it was just and it was a community right where there was a faction of, of people who showed up on a regular basis like the employees kind of a cheers vibe where you know everyone you know each other um mm. and and also lots of visitors tourists so new people to meet with all the time. Uh, it's it's how I got involved really with the cannabis community because up to that point, um, I just like, I smoked, but kind of kept to my own little pre-existing circles. Uh, and and the hotbox expanded that world in a huge way. Um, and yeah, I really am going to miss it a lot. You know what's interesting about you? Uh, I just realized now when you're talking. Um, not that I thought you were the opposite of this before, but if someone were to hear you speak and then was like, where do you think her, fur off, her first office as a lawyer was? I don't think any of those people would say, an illegal weed cafe? <laughs> <laughs> because you, you and, and, and that's overstating the obvious. You know, I, I always got, used to get pissed off when, when weed culture was always expressed like this, man. You know, like I, I always, I just hated that. I thought it was a bastardization of what it really was like. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, um, there is that element. And, and a lawyer that launches from, um, you know, a, a weed cafe, no one is going to expect someone that is like, like you, if someone were to say, um, does Karima own a marijuana dispensary or a science lab? I think a lot of people would go with science lab, you know, like you're professional. You don't speak in the vernacular that much. Um, from what I'm told, you're stoned 24 seven. You never seem like you are right. Like, Thank you. yeah. Yes. Um, so, but, but there's jokes in that and everything, but in all seriousness, I know more people like you, I think, than I do the, the, the bastardized burnout version of a pothead. I even met a Rastafarian once who told me something really interesting. 
he's like, how much do you smoke a day? And I, and, and I've always, I've been the same for 25 years. I, I, I roll like a dime and a half at like 6 PM. And then I smoke that at three different intervals until 11. And that, and that's it. I, I don't, he's like, that's the way you're supposed to smoke. He's like a real Rastafarian will like ritualize smoking weed in a way that doesn't increase their tolerance level. Uh-huh. And so the, the Rastas uh-huh. that walk around with the baby arm size joints, they just think that those guys are douchebags. Like, like, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. um, and because I think that, you know, similar to coffee, I think like marijuana does something and, and allows our perspective to shift in a way that isn't detrimental or dumb or slow, but actually kind of creative and nonlinear. And maybe, you know, a little bit, um, there might be a little bit of a benefit there. Mm-hmm. Do you have a thought on that? Yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, I've been through the phase of kind of perpetually stoned um, in a way that you don't even feel or enjoy it anymore. Right. Um, and that's not, I, I don't see any real value in that. Um, so it, it, I can't say that I have rituals around cannabis um, because I am a pretty sporadic person. Uh, and are you sporadic because of cannabis? <laughs> No, I'm, um, I'm, I'm kidding. Okay. I'm playing the after school special role, you know. I think I'm 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 more focused actually. Um but to your point about kind of the stereotypical stoner versus reality, which is that um a lot of people use cannabis and you know are productive functional members of society, which doesn't necessarily mean kind of having a particular job or whatever. Um, but just people who, you know, connect with others, give back to the community, that kind of thing. That was like my experience at, at the hot box. Um, and yeah, like it, it, uh, respect for the plant to me also entails, um, not over indulging or over consuming. Um, so, so I, I think that there's, um, there's truth to, to what you were told there. Uh, yeah. You know, um, just as a journalistic note, I have no idea if he was telling me the truth. It just, it sounded like it made sense. No, I it's, it's like, intuitive. Yeah. I like yeah. that. And, and you know, whatever. Um, subjective. What is true? We're tr- in a post-truth to society. So. Yeah, we totally are. Uh, um, there was a place on Bloor street between Spadina and Bathurst on the South side of the street behind the second cup. From like 2003 to 2005, that was called Back Alley Callies. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever heard of this place. It was like straight out of a Tarantino movie or something. So you walk, you remember the alley where like the green room or the red room is? No, wait, the green room? You know where the green room is? And it's like an alley near Bloor, just south of Bloor, you know, north of like Harvard kind of thing. Uh, very close to Bloor. And there's an alley there, and it runs east-west like Blur does uh, between Spadina and Bathurst. And there's a, there was this fence there and a camera on it. And I, I don't remember who took me there first, but um, you know, after the first time, I got my membership card and I was allowed to go. And they buzz you in, and you walk in. And this was like – the Hotbox Cafe existed, but this was like a totally different beast. It was like you, you sat at a table, and they gave you a menu – and the menu had like, you know, 20, 30 different types of weed, 
10 different types of hash, but then it had like LSD and mushrooms and MDMA and like everything. And like a guy like me, man, I was at back alley. Callie's like fucking three times a week. Like I was just, you know what I mean? I was like, wait a second. I have access to anything. I fucking, wow, this is great. And I don't have to deal with that dealer with the rollerblades, that fucking heat score. Like, this is awesome. Um, <laughs> And I used to go I'm there. I swear, I've never done most of those drugs. Yeah, I mean, I'm not like I'm not saying anyone should. Um, probably shouldn't have, but um, you know, I, I don't know. I've just been like, I've never been the guy that's like who does like a whoever had a hundred dollar a day blow habit because first of all, my sinuses just would disappear. I'd literally look like Baltimore, right? Because my nose would go away. Um, <laughs> you know, but I'd had stints. I was a binge guy, so I would like. Oh, someone just gave me a lot of, you know, blow or shrooms or this or that. You don't want to go to bed with uh, with a baggie, you know, and I would just make sure that like it was gone. Um, and I had to like grow out of that. That was like one of the immature parts of me that I didn't really grow out of until like three years ago when I stopped drinking because that was the gateway drug. It's not mm-hmm. really weed. Um, Harry Anslinger, that was who created that. Do you remember that? You, Harry Ansling, Anslinger yep. was the first drug czar, I think, of the United States, and said that um, that said that weed caused black men to rape white women, stuff like that. Yeah, he's a really interesting character because yeah. he—I don't know how much you know about him, um, but prior—I think to I taking, said everything I know. Okay, <laughs> pretty sure. Prior to taking up the mantle of like anti-cannabis. He was in whatever government department was responsible for prohibition of alcohol. And so his initial career was, you know, alcohol is so harmful compared to blah, 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 including cannabis. But when, you know, uh, whatever amendment it was, um, you know, was uh, like when prohibition ended, basically, or was on the verge of ending, um, this guy. Sad day for the mafia, by the way. It's still a holiday for them, I think. (laughs) Prohibition ended. (laughs) Yeah, that's yeah, for sure. That was bread and butter. Um, But when that came to an end or was close to it, this bureaucrat who realized he was about to be obsolete needed to find another cause, and that cause became cannabis. Need to to what to to justify his existence, kind of thing, or what was the? Yeah, to justify his existence and like kind of continued role as a bureaucrat. So was it ever tied into, because I remember hearing this when I was a kid, that it was tied into the textiles industry because hemp was so good and you could yield so much of it that big giant textile corporations were like, no, we need, uh, we need to tell our government friends to, to make it illegal so that they can't make textiles out of it. Was that an urban myth or whatever? I, I've heard that as well. Um, and, and I suspect that there's probably some truth to it because you know, corporate lobbies are why we can't have nice things. Um, yeah. To your other point, though. Racism, and lawyers, except for you. <laughs> racism was a factor in it as well. Yeah. Um, and that was part of what Harry Anslinger latched on to um, in propagating his message. But Canada actually was earlier than the U.S. Um, as far as uh, making cannabis illegal. Um, and, you know, it... it was the result of Mackenzie King doing an inquiry after riots in BC. Um, and he, he stumbled upon the fact that opium dens were a thing. And he's like, whoa, whoa, we can't have, you know, the white yep. ladies partying with these guys. And so that they, was like the first anti-drug legislation. And then it sort of 
snowballed um, and, you know, fast forward hundreds of thousands of lives and like yeah. billions of dollars and uh, it's now legal and we're good to go. I know you're not supposed to do this. But I'm, I'm not very sophisticated when it comes to the law because obviously I'm not a lawyer. I am a high school graduate, college dropout. Um, but I, so I don't normally want to contrast things that are kind of like stupid to contrast. But it's always kind of struck me as like weird that um, we put drug users in prisons for extended sentences. Mm-hmm. But if you sexually abuse a minor, you you probably get like half the weight in, in the sentence. And I've never just understood this. I, and every time I try to talk to a lawyer about it, they say things like, look, I don't want it. Look, this conversation leads to mandatory minimums and I just don't believe in mandatory minimums. And I'm just like, okay, why not? Why not just for a couple crimes? <laughs> you know, they have mandatory minimum for murder conviction, right? Isn't it 25 years? And then you get no. a parole after. Uh, no? Mandatory minimums are like, in my view, unconstitutional in the Supreme Court's view as well. Um, but they do it sort of piecemeal um, and the, the separate issue because it a mandatory minimum affects the discretion of a judge to consider sort of the circumstances of the offense. Um, but to, you know, why is that the case? Um, the prison industrial complex is really, really, really big money. Uh, so I'm sorry to say that. that that's a component of it. And we also just have a tendency to put people who are inconvenient out of sight, out of mind. Um, and that tends to overlap with marginalized communities, whether the mm-hmm. basis of that marginalization is drug addiction or poverty or mental illness or combination thereof. Um, but, uh, you know, what's on the books, like, you know, it, societally is that beneficial? Like no one rehabs in prison. Uh, And yet that's where we warehouse people in cages um, for offenses that sometimes end up not being offenses at all, um, like we see with cannabis. And it's on the backs of those individuals, um, many of whom were medical patients, that we have legalization. And, you know, the travesty with that is the way it rolled out in Canada gave a huge head start to people with yeah. capital. Uh, it basically unseated the unlicensed, unregulated black market, whatever you call it. Um, and like they failed, right? So people lost a lot of money uh, on these cannabis stocks. Um, the CEOs made bank, but- uh, I hope Julian Fantino lost, lost a lot of money. I really do. That was the kind of like ground floor investor guy that like- Yeah, where I was yeah like, exactly. Okay, something's who, real- who, made his career off of prohibition and then was first in line to cash in. Right. Um, and, and he's not the only one. There are lots of politicians, former law enforcement who entered that space and, you know, were Senator, Senator Linda from, um, I don't share her politics, but she's always been nice to me. Um, we've been, we've been like, um, acquaintances, I guess you'd say in the digital realm for five years or something like that, like a here and there kind of like quick chat conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I bug her for interviews once a year and she's like, you know, we don't do interviews, James. And I'm like, tra la 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 la. I usually say something like that, but she wrote, uh, I kind of laid into her once cause she tweeted, uh, on the day that legalization happened, 
quote, it's a sad day for Canadian kids. But what she didn't say in that tweet is that she had to recuse herself from the actual vote when they were passing it or giving it royal assent in the Senate because she owns real estate that she rents out to a weed dispensary. <laughs> and it's just like, it's a sad day for Canadian kids. My kids are going to Disney World thanks to the weed dispensary rent. Like, it's like, you know, um, I, I don't know. I guess some people have an ability to sort of see past the hypocrisy somehow and just call it business. I don't know. I don't really understand. Like, now that it's legal, I might as well profit, you know. Mm-hmm. Fuck mm-hmm. principles, you know. Mm-hmm. Did you, uh, were you involved in weed ad- advocacy before legalization? Um. Yeah, I got into it kind of. I, the subject started to interest me when I was in law school. Um, and then the hot box was my gateway into that <laughs> activism. So for Anslinger two years, was right. The hot box cafe was your gateway. <laughs> <laughs> so Traitor. for two years prior to legalization, I was kind of, you know, it, following along with the policy and where the law was developing and just talking to people to sort of understand. Um, and that's like, really, that was the, the meaningful part. So people's different relationships to cannabis, talk to a lot of people who used it for medical reasons. Um, so like, I know nobody out of the hundreds of people that I've known personally that smoke weed, not mm-hmm. one of them was like, you know, it's really for my glaucoma. No one's ever said that to me. I'm sure I know it happens, yeah. but I just, is it the elderly that use it for that? Like maybe I should just It, it was a mix. No, it was a mix. Um, people with chronic illnesses, um, sure, the elderly, um, people like military vets, um, you know, for a variety of ailments, including PTSD. Um, being in like those activist spaces probably increased my likelihood of, of encountering people with that background, right? Um, so it, it was a function of where I was talking to people. Um, but then also like relationships with cannabis where it's like, I just enjoy it. Like it makes me feel better, like self-medicating or yeah. um, just recreational, right? Pure recreational. Um, and yeah, like, so people's stories though, like, and, and encounters with the criminal justice system, that was also yeah. a point of interest. Yeah. Uh, weed is funny like that. Um, it, it, the, when, when legalization happened, um, there was a bunch of stuff that I was like livid about. Uh, one of them, actually, this is kind of an interesting story. I was in the room when the idea for the next leader of the Liberal Party, this was in 2011, when they got shellacked and they were left with like negative 20,000 seats. I can't remember, but it was just a handful of seats. It was like the worst loss in liberal government history or something. And I remember they went through like leaders like Stefan Dion and all that kind of stuff. Um, so in 2011, they had the worst uh, election ever. And I was uh, sitting with Alfred Apps. Alfred used to be, he's a lawyer. He used to be the uh, president of the Liberal Party of Canada. And he wanted to hire me to do on-the-spot interviews at the Liberal Convention in January of 2012. And we're sitting there and we, we were talking about um, we were talking a little bit about Justin Trudeau, um, Alfred Apps, and he turned out to be correct, was like, you know, and this is t- late 2011. 
Um, I'm, I can't, it was at 2013 that I think Trudeau was elected leader. And I think, I think, um, and then in 2015, he became prime minister. Um, but in, tw- in 2011, uh, we're, we're, sit- we're, I think we were at High Steakhouse, to be honest with you, some douchebag overpriced place like that. I wasn't paying. Um, he, he goes, you know what I think we should do? And I'm like, what? He's like, we should just legalize marijuana. And I'm like, I'm, I'm down for that. Like, <laughs> like yeah. mm-hmm. ever since I read the Cypress Hill CD cover when I was 14, <laughs> I, I knew, I knew that the justice system was not on the side of marijuana, mm-hmm. of weed. And, um, and so I was like, this is a great idea. And all of the executives at the liberal party hated it. Square. So, yeah. So when I started, I, I had a, so my contract was now two things. It was um, on the spot interviews at the convention in like four or five months. But then I had to spend the last four or five months of 2011, like leaning on marijuana advocacy groups and convincing them to tell their members to email liberal delegates to vote yes on the proposition at the convention for legalization. The last poll, which was like a month before that, said that 30 percent wanted it to be yes and 70 percent didn't want it um it does it seems almost impossible because that was only like 11 years ago or something uh-huh. like that it, uh-huh. but that's the way it was and uh you know what i gotta be honest with you i didn't do a post post-mortem of my work i worked really hard and then it turned out it was 78 percent yes and 22 percent no i don't know how to like credit myself for that there's probably a bunch of other stuff I, I, maybe i was a cog or something I'm going to start but, telling people that you legalize weed in Canada. So. Yeah, if I had a, a PR guy right now is watching, he's being like, stop fucking diminishing your mystique. It's, it's going to be great. <laughs> um, you know, but I don't know. Like, I, I would love to say, I, I had some, maybe I, I, had, I played a small role in, in that first domino of policy initiatives being passed in a convention. You know, like that exciting world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I interviewed Justin Trudeau uh, that weekend it was january 2012 the convention before the vote uh for legalization and i i had a half ounce of like really skunky indica in my lapel pocket um and it just smelled everywhere and i kind of thought it was symbolic (laughs) i just kept doing it but i asked him uh about legalization and i should have brought the clip but his answer was i'm not sure it's the type of thing that we want to do as a society when we're trying to get people to drink less and smoke less. And it was basically that. And I was like, and Ezra Levant illegally like played the clip over and over and over and over again when he finally legalized it, right? Never gave me, not that, I don't know, fair use, I guess, but he never even like put, anyways, whatever. It's Ezra Levant. Um, so the politics of, mar- of weed, mm-hmm. when it was first suggested, was like basically the main ingredient in how the government rolled it out. The government stalled their rollout, um, not so it could be well prepared for a changing society, but because the economics of the of weed was becoming really political. Like all mm-hmm. of the, how did all of these politicians get this ground floor access to investment opportunities for mm-hmm. grow ups? Like, mm-hmm. like you know, and and you know who does really good work on this is uh, Jody Emery. Mm-hmm. She 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 nails it she 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 has a list it's like 63 sitting politicians or ex-police officers or police chiefs or whatever mm-hmm. that have all like profited from the ground floor and then the industry itself loses like what 
what did they lose? I, I don't even remember the number, but it was it was like fifty million or something. I can't remember what it was, but it was a stupid ridiculous number. amounts of money for. Yeah. But but it's also because like weed's not something that's conducive to mass production, even where they hire people who are good with the plant, have experience with the plant. It's just it's it's not that type of product. Um, so you know, giant green like there was a disconnect between this I, this capitalist idea of go big expansion you know, get as much bang for our buck as possible and what it actually takes to produce good flour. Um, and then, you know, obscene amounts of money wasted on like concerts and swag and marketing things. And just despite the restrictive rules around advertising, um, just a lot of money thrown into that that, you know, didn't go like it lined certain pockets and then a lot of people got screwed. And yeah. still to this day, because of all the barriers to entry um, to the industry and it's it's a portfolio that's, you know, under the umbrella of Health Canada. So it's approached from this perspective of, you know, restricting and just really stringent rules and regulations um, when in fact, you know, it's more akin to something that, that could be produced in a farmer's market. So there's, there's a balance somewhere between kind of products for safe consumption for people um, and ensuring yeah. some kind of quality, right. Versus it needs to come from a factory and be wrapped in 10 layers of plastic. Oh my god, um, the packaging is fucking yeah. ridiculous. Like you order like a half quarter and it's like you could fit a half ounce in that thing that they that canister thing that they give you. Um yeah, I don't know. Like it's almost like they decided to hire all the people to strategize the rollout and all of those people like not only have they never smoked pop, but they were allergic you know, like those guys. So they have no idea mm -hmm. how, to, how to market it. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I, I, it, it felt, it felt like they should have just grandfathered in the dispensaries that existed. Honestly, being babies, you know, it's just like, and like the sort of that, that industry as it was, was quite diverse. Right. Um, when like the Bay street, just, it reflected the Bay street demographic. Um, and, and, yeah, so it sucked. Uh, like legalization was a setback in some ways. Obviously, there are successes too. So I don't mean to downplay that. Um, but what are the successes? Like the hotbox became illegal. What are the successes? Um, well, I think you know being able to smoke freely in public without the apprehension of being caught by like right like it's it's no longer illicit in that way so for me that's the biggest win because like i personally we can, that was an we can give mandatory minimums to people that smoke hash oil in public though because that's disgusting i fucking hate hash oil it's so good i once watched a guy um he did a hundred hash oil bts by going So we never had a clean inhale of air for a hundred hash oil BTs. 
just witnessing it, I turned green and threw up. <laughs> I was just like, how did that I, work out for him? I don't know. He was fine. I think he's dead now, to be honest with you. I think, I think he died. Not of, because of that, just other life. A things. collective of bad decisions, probably. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know. Um, but in any event, uh, yeah. Uh, like when, before, before, before weed was legal, there were something like nine different possession charges. Mm-hmm. And now there's like 43. Yeah, so so that's another example of like I, I can't speak to those numbers because I'm not a numerical person. Um, but even some of the penalties um, got harsher, um, and and because certain kind of penalties were made, just a broader range of possibilities. It meant that if you were a permanent resident, for example, and got charged with one of those, you might lose your ability to be in Canada. So it had like these repercussions that were perhaps unintended, I don't know, um, but, you know, created a culture, a different culture of strictness, right? It's still embedded in criminal law um, where, you know, it it ought to be just straight regulatory offenses, if you ask me. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Yeah, I, I, th- I thought it was interesting. Um, and I'm not saying people should smoke joints and drive, although... I, I do maintain that um, when I when I realized like I, I wasn't until like 32 or something when I when I was told about the difference between indica and sativa and I haven't smoked indica ever since <laughs> like, I'm just you know what I mean like wheelchair weed and shit like I, I you know it just made me lazy and stuff but um, the way that marijuana was was like rolled out part of the pun and the way that um, how slow it was. Um, all the new charges that like you can get charged with um, the fact that I feel like uh, I don't know Sophia Loren with the like five inch filter on the government rolled joints like oh my god like like you can't even smoke it just and then it won't go and like I'm, I'm sitting there with scissors and stuff and then I just break the whole thing up into a pipe because I can't stand it um, but they really like to me bat- like butchered the entire thing like they, they butchered it financially they butchered it um from a marketing standpoint i remember uh uh this lawyer that i knew joe Vilnov, uh gave me conservative party caucus documents and you can like read the transcripts of these guys arguing um with each other about like one side was like well we we have to control if we win the next election and they did and it's legal um, we, we have to sell it like uh, Premier Winwood in government stores so that our uh, senior citizen religious base doesn't abandon us. 
that's all they cared about. <laughs> it was like, okay. Yeah, it's, I mean, on one level, like the cultural shift has been fairly rapid, um, where, you know, the day of legalization, I I was nervous about, like, rolling a joint in public, and now I wouldn't think twice about it. Um, I I had more fun rolling joints in public when it was illegal. I don't think I've ever rolled a joint in public since it's been legal. It's like they took away the only dopamine that marijuana gives you. in the comments, though, Saucy Sea Witch is correct. The Indica Sativa binary is a myth. Oh, so it's placebo that's been making me feel not tired <laughs> when I smoke. Uh... So what is the difference then? It's just nothing? It's just like... No, I mean, like, uh, different strains will have, like, different sort of terpene content, like, and and depending on your own like endocannabinoid system, it's going to connect with certain strains, like have certain effects. Um, I am like not great at the science part of it. So that's the extent of my explanation. Um, but uh, give it a go. You might actually like some, some Indica's. Some of the, mar- like a lot of the marketing still leans heavily into that. And, you know, it's just, it's also. I, I'm not convinced. Cool. I'm not, I, I have to do my due diligence on this because um, either my brain is is revealing that I'm, I don't know, gullible and I can just change things with my mind because I, I, I know that when I smoke sativa, mm-hmm. I do not feel tired. But when I smoke indica, I feel tired. If you tell me now that I am like this, like the power of suggestion is so stronger than me that <laughs> I've been doing this for 20 years, 10 years, whatever it is. Really? That, is that the case? I, I'm shocked at that. I have to look that up. I'm sorry, Saucy Sea Witch, but I need to, I need to get a we'll, second. We'll circle back. We'll circle back on this. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, anyways, the weed rollout, um, there's so many things that are wrong with it. Driving while high. That's what I wanted to say. Hmm. I thought it was kind of hilarious the way that everyone was starting to operate, like from the police to government statements to like teachers, as if someone just invented the day that they legalized weed, smoking weed and driving. It's like no one had ever done it before. And all of a sudden, like, they're like, oh my God, we have to prepare for this avalanche of cases of people. I hate to break it to you, but like most people that I knew until they were like 25 at least were like, I don't think smoking weed and driving is, is really in being impaired. I, I think for a lot of people, they thought that they were more focused. They thought, you know what I mean? And I, I you know, it, it's not like alcohol. I know a lot of people that don't drink and don't smoke weed. They always lump the two together just because you're inebriated. But what are your, I know you're a lawyer and you can't like be like, I think you should get high and drive. But like, what, what, what do you think of that issue? Cause I, cause I thought it was interesting the way that kind of transpired too. So, I mean, I, full disclosure, I don't drive a car. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't either. I don't even have a license. Not only do I not have a man card, I was like, paint that shit pink because I don't even want a fucking driver's license. I just don't. I didn't yeah. know that. That's cool. We have that in common. Um, you know how much we of the planet we probably saved by not buying gas and staying at home because we can't right. get anywhere because we have no way of getting there? You know, like. <laughs> that's why I have a scooter. Um, but yeah, okay, on the point of driving, um, 
I don't know that there has been um, a, constitu a, a constitutional challenge at the Supreme Court level, um, but because like the way the rules were set up, it kind of creates this false equivalency to alcohol without accounting for people's tolerance or potential medical needs. Um, so effectively, there are people who should never drive because they're like they, they would test consistently above the legal limit, um, but maybe just not high or affected um, or impaired rather. Um, and then there's others who, you know, if they are a novice user, um, they, they may not reach that threshold, but be impaired. Um, and, and so, and, and like there are people as well who, and I'm thinking again about medical users, um, who are less safe to drive if they haven't taken their medication. Um, so it, it, none of that nuance is captured in the legislation. I think it is uh, a travesty. Um, and we'll see kind of how those cases make their way. Unfortunately, it's really expensive. Um, well, they don't really know how to test accurately for being high and impaired or whatever, right? Like the, the yeah, they, they experimented with different um, different tests. Like one that was common at the outset, like it didn't, it wasn't reliable in cold weather, um, which is problematic uh, in Canada, obviously. Um, yeah, so it, it's uh, that regime is just a. A cluster do you still because we all did this when we were young stoners do you still if you're gonna go eat out like a restaurant that you really like get high right before so that you can eat that meal in a munchies state of mind sometimes um sometimes yes um for a buffet 100 yeah, percent. Yeah. um but like also i like it after a meal too kind of as the mm. Uh, palate yes. cleanser right so it's just there's the there's world so many it. ways you can no consume your yeah, no Mary Jane yes. mix it up that's what I'm saying when I'm like not ritualistic about it I like to mix it up so I like um the I like the way they're approaching edibles like I, I get these things called the Edison jolts and they're like pellets like lozenges and they're really tiny and it's like 10 milligrams for a little pellet and I'll just take three or four of them and just like let them dissolve and and I'll be a, a happy man for like five hours. Um, I've never taken I a don't... pellet of weed. Pardon me? I've never had a pellet of weed. <laughs> it's great. The one, I, I hated edibles for so long because they always seem so childish. I don't I don't buy gummy bears. Why would I all of a sudden buy gummy bears? Why don't bears? you buy gummy bears? Well, um, probably because I don't watch wrestling. I'm, I'm imagining it's something like that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, see, knowing that you buy gummy bears now makes me obviously rethink the whole thing. Like maybe I should start <laughs> buying gummy bears. Um, but when I turned 16, I was like, I'm too old for gummy bears. So I'm not I'm not going to like as a 30-something-year-old be like, you know what? I got a hankering for gummy bears and sour keys and jawbreakers and all that kind of shit. Um, I, I urge you to explore that side of yourself. I, I don't like candy. Um, okay, that's chocolate... fine. You don't have to, it doesn't have to be candy. Um, but edibles, I love. Um, one of my favorite things is like, especially in the winter, well, only in the winter, um, 
like I'll make hot chocolate, but use infused chocolate as the base and just like boil milk and then pour it into a cup and then have my hot chocolate. Um, And it is dope. I recommend it. Yeah, there's like a lot of really good applications, eh? Like the food thing is endless. You just make weed butter and then all of a sudden you can just make anything, you know? And it's gonna like I I'm 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 kind of a ninja at, cho- at the the traditional chocolate chip cookies. I make it from scratch with my daughter, whose little hands does the final form of the cookie blob dough thing, and so they always come out perfect. I don't know how she does it, but she's got like these perfect little hands, and everything's so symmetrical, and all our cookies are perfectly shaped because of Lizzie's little hands. Um, but one day, I you know I, I made weed cookies because I made weed butter. And it was fantastic. Like it was, it was great. But what I noticed about cookies versus these little pellets that I take is that these little pellets give me a consistent feeling when I take them. It's maybe like 30 or 40 milligrams, but I'm fine with that. That's fine. Sometimes you get a cookie and there could be like a hundred milligrams in there. No one really fucking knows. You know what I mean? Like, especially if they're kind of mass produced. And that brings us back to kind of, you know, if we do have farmer's markets, which are like my preferred I like that stuff, right? I like the that vibe. Um, but there's no real quality assurance. Um, so there's got to be a way to bridge this, right? And, and we're just, like, not there. And Health Canada isn't looking at it from that angle because that's not what their focus or role is. Yeah, the ad, the ad rules are fucked. I, I went to a place uh, in Barry's Bay called Baybud. Um, it's where I get my lozenges and, uh, I, I walked in and I was like, you know, I do this podcast and, uh, you know, I, I, he was like the guy that I first approached to see if we could get like some sort of sponsor. And I was telling him, I was like, I don't even want, I, you know, I don't want you to pay me anything. I want to like give you a couple product spots or, or mention you at the end or put a logo. I don't know, whatever the fuck. And then get, do a promotional code or something. And then we'll see uh, if you get a return. And we'll see what happens and we'll know our numbers and maybe we can adjust. And then maybe you pay me something if it works out well. Uh-huh. And then I read the fucking rules that you, that you have to go through in order to like, like literally like I, I, after a week of struggling to try to figure out how to do this, I finally came up with this commercial idea where I was like, Bay bud in Barry's Bay. We sell something we can't name in this commercial. Bay bud. <laughs> In Barry's Bay. Like, that, I didn't know what else to do because yeah. it was like, you could sell the hats and the shirts. And I was like, okay. yeah, yeah. You know? it's, it's a straight jacket, the rules of advertising. Um, and, and there's, you know, the way it was campaigned as, as a progressive, you know, Such this bullshit. is a burden on the criminal justice yeah. system, which is true. Um, but then, like, the stated objectives of the legislation are, like, protect children from harm. Yeah. Uh, you know, like... Like, if you smoke a joint... Like, the people don't... It is so absurd that if you smoke a joint... What is it? Within 20 yards of a school or something like that? That, like, you could get... it. Like, that's, like, a serious offense. That might it? be a regulation, like, specific to Ontario. Um, and I'm not sure. Because I just smoke wherever I would smoke a cigarette. Like some of these are buying it from the kids at that school. Like you have to be realistic <laughs> about these things. <laughs> you know? um, do you think that we should do like a Portugal model and, and just kind of decriminalize everything? I, I think that the criminal justice system is too blunt an instrument to deal effectively with what is a health issue, right? 
Um, so the use of, of drugs is tied to a lot of stigma. I don't think it's inherently bad. I think, in fact, it would be improved if, um, you know, there was reliable, safe access. Um, people weren't putting themselves in compromising positions, uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I think that that would largely improve society um, and is, you know, I believe in Portugal, like the revenue from that goes into addiction programs and like social programs. Mm -hmm. So it could be like a positive feedback loop. Um, it's certainly better than our current course, which is just to pummel people who are unfortunate enough to be caught. And, you know, there are drug users across social strata. Um, so it's not exclusively a poor person thing. That's just who ends up being caught, prosecuted, and convicted more often. Um, there's, you know, a lot of drugs in yeah, upper sometimes. echelons of society. Just, it's not, so, so like that, just based on that alone, you, we're doing the wrong, like the wrong approach. How many lawyers do you know personally that have allergy issues? <laughs> um, I can't really, like, I am a bad I don't think I'm really seriously asking you the question. Yeah, no, <laughs> but, I, I, but I'm like, I can't tell when people are on drugs. I just take everyone at face value all the time. Um, you're projecting then because I don't think that people can normally tell when you're on drugs, like when you're high. Great. Yeah. That's how I Except like it. Except for right this second. <laughs> Only because you said to. I know, I do. James, um, me do it. <laughs> no, you can't prove a thing. And you, since you're my lawyer, you have to stop talking about this right now. <laughs> Wait a second. Um, yeah, I, I, I hope they decriminalize. Uh, like, we need a whole society facelift. I, I'm really confused about something, actually. I've been thinking about this lately. There are two things that I can think of that they were kind of, not invented, but, that, you know, a, a pile of examples of this thing came, uh, you know, existed, and then a pile existed over here. The one thing is, is classical music. It's like, it's the classic composers and then like one or two guys that no one knows their names. It's like it, everything began and ended with, oh, you can't get better than Mozart. Right, that's it. You know, like, this, we're done. And the other thing is political systems. It's like, why are there only like four? <laughs> Whatever it is. Like, why? why and, and why can't we rename our system um, to reflect the idea that capitalism and social programs intermingle to create an entity that isn't either of those things. Because I think we we put ourselves in these boxes, oh, you're a fucking communist, oh, you're a fucking conservative, and it's, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, eh, we don't have to be any of these things. We can be this, like, you know, strange milieu of a bunch of really reasonable political positions. Um, I It's a stoner question, maybe, but I'm asking you, you know, why do you think that we just sort of, like, plateaued uh, forget the classical music thing, but uh, uh, you know, when it comes to political systems, like what was the last political system invented? Was it Marxism? Like, like you know, it, it seems like we are terribly uncreative when it comes to how to run our own societies. Um, Do you I want think... to smoke another bowl before you answer this question, Karima? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I don't know when we've last invented a political system, um, but I think we are the way we are 
because there's a vested interest in preserving the status quo. And in Canada specifically, we have cliques, basically, right, that that exist and have existed and are generational, um, and, and the system just self-replicates. Um, and I say that because, you know, in the legal community, there are lots of multi-generational lawyers. Um, I think the same is true for journalism. The same is true for politics. Um, yeah. And we also have wealth concentrated uh, in a relatively small group of people. Um, and, and it's their interests that we serve. So that's yeah. why, you know, and it, we think about like voter apathy and the low turnouts in the recent municipal elections. Um, the provincial election, even the federal election. So people sense, I think, that these levers that are supposed to provide some mechanism of accountability just aren't. Um, and I don't know, it's it's all very bleak. I don't have an answer to any of this. Yeah, no. But I think I'm, that's why it, the way it is. Yeah, the, the, there is a, there's a weird disconnect because, um, you know, <sighs> We have a complex society um, with all these flaws um, from where it came from, all these like uh, starting points that are kind of nefarious and colonial and racist and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily believe, like, I don't know, I don't think I'm, I'm not one of these people that's like, well, since it started with the British colonialists, we have to dismantle it all. I just think that that's unproductive. I think hundreds of thousands or millions of people will die because it's just like, that's a revolution. I don't want to live in a revolution. But but if we can improve the system that we exist in, I, I think that's the smarter choice. I think because we got, starting like 20 years ago and kind of incrementally until now, like slowly over time polarized, mm-hmm. I think what it did is it created this very quiet group of middle people that didn't really like what they were seeing coming from either of these polarized sides. And they became the apathetic and they, but they were larger. And I think they're larger in numbers than the two sides that are polarized. I don't know if that's true now. I think that was true like five years ago. And um, I just find it interesting that we, we kind of like, you know, the internet and then to a greater extent, social media, uh, you know, turned us kind of turned us into ai before ai existed like it feels that's what it kind of feels like the way that we react to things online the way that our emotions and anger will just come out and over because of the screen in front of us um the way we buy things you know it's just we don't really be like man i think our humanity is like leaving us man like it's it's crazy i do though i do sorry about the uh stew accent or whatever that is but you know like I, I guess disconnected like i feel like we don't know how to be with each other or something anymore is it like am, am i totally am i paranoid man did i smoke the indica what's going on <laughs> yeah uh, yeah i think um i it feels more polarized now than it has at any point in my recent memory but i i don't have that much to draw on so is it just the world is more awful as you grow older and start to recognize that for what it is were things actually better before i don't know um but i agree that kind of people in the middle 
It's more on display now. Polarization yeah. is on yeah. display now. Yeah. And the and the the what do they call that? Like the the bay window, you know, um, the shop window, like the main window that shows the bay shit, like when you're on Queen Street or whatever. And that that's like Facebook and Twitter, you know, and it's it it's surfaceal and just kind of two dimensional, um, not real. But then the media decides that it's real. Like, like, do you remember when Marie Hanin was on, uh, uh, was getting interviewed by Peter Mansbridge? And it was like after the Gomeshi trial. And Mansbridge goes, um, now I'm going to read some tweets from just random people on Twitter. Uh, the first one, you know, college girls, 6969 or whatever it was, uh, would like to know why you as a woman could betray other women by representing Giancomeshi. And Marie, and I'm paraphrasing now, but Marie Hanin would be like, first of all, why would you just like ask me a question from some rando on Twitter? <laughs> it was something like that. And like, um, and even though I had spent like the previous six months falling desperately in love with this woman, at that moment I was like, that's it. She's, she's everything now. <laughs> like she just, because I don't and sorry, the, the point of that was that social media becomes like the, you know, the, the showroom or the, the, the front window at the bay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not really worth like the stuff in it isn't worth anything and, and it's being monetized. But it is it's how we react. It's like Facebook became our nervous center or Twitter became our nervous center. The pandemic didn't help either because then everyone was just terminally online in fact it was the only place to be to have interactions for for some of us right um so i feel like that fast-tracked it like our demise to some extent um and just yeah people consuming crap and spewing crap and there's no filters or like sense I'm picturing like Peter Mansbridge basically doing like the reading mean tweets out loud though. And that's really yeah. a funny thought. <laughs> well, well he was, he was providing uh, a CBC virtue signal, mm. right? Because you know, there, there was a time like the Gomeshi case was I, okay. I, like, you know, I, people are going to get mad because people get mad. The Gomeshi case was so interesting. Like I felt like um, if you're going to law school now, it would be a great case just mm. as an example of of like how um how the legal system works how maybe for some reason for some people maybe how it doesn't work but i actually think that it worked pretty well there i think that if like three key witnesses all lie on the stand it's probably a travesty of justice that you get convicted mm-hmm. <laughs> right? like it just seems that way um but the way that um like ever since me too the media has done this weird thing where for some issues you don't have to prove any of the things that you say. You uh-huh. just have to say them. And and when you say them, that that's the optics protecting, you know, uh, ritual or whatever. So mm-hmm. so that example would be um, the idea the idea that 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 um, that you have to question a lawyer uh, for doing their job uh-huh. because they even though everyone's got a right to a lawyer, they didn't choose their politics over their occupations. So they're bad. Um, 
And the and you know the CBC would never run a story, for example, about how fucking absurd that is, just on right. its face. You know, I always thought that that was weird when like, um, you know, uh, there's a movie I can't remember what it is, but but someone has to represent an American trader who betrayed their government, mm-hmm. and they got harassed and bricks were thrown at them. It's just like, what you, if, you, if you guys want fascism, I guess we could just hang the guy in the town. Criminal court. defense work is like you're literally on the front lines protecting an individual from the mighty force of the state. You cannot get more progressive than that, regardless of what mm. the allegations are, because your role is to hold the state to account, to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, whatever those allegations are. So if the state can't do that job, then doesn't meet the threshold, right? Either police messed up, prosecution messed up, whatever. But that's like you are standing between this individual and the full weight and force of the state. So people need to think about that when there are unpopular litigants. And we have a lot of unpopular litigants right now, you know, if we're thinking about the convoy or the inquiry, there's a lot of unpopular people who, you know, we've seen do objectively bad stuff sometimes, um, but does it rise to the level of a criminal act? And, And the reason that we have such high standards for criminal act is because loss of liberty is, it's just a, a fundamental civil right, right? Um, and, you know, that then it's possible as well to have a discussion about where our, our justice system isn't just at all. And there's people who get railroaded. And then you have, you know, premiers like in Ontario who gut legal aid and make it even harder to have a lawyer while simultaneously giving more money to the prosecution. Um, so all of this is just a plug for defense lawyers who take way too much shit for what's actually a social service. I'm just going to put that out there. Um, I, I, I talked to reality winner not too long ago um, who spent like five years in prison for leaking classified documents. And, you know, she was talking about um, the for-profit prison system in the United States. I'm told that we have like a version of that here. Are you aware of what that is? Sorry, this is like a blind question. I don't know if you know the answer to this, but it just came to mind because, you know, I, I was thinking while you were talking about, the, and, and earlier we were talking about re- recidivism and how it's like a revolving door. And I'm sure that has a, the, the reason why that revolving door isn't plugged because of the for-profit prison system. And then you find out that corporations are paying these inmates like a dollar a day to like make furniture and shit, um, which probably seems like a business people's answer to, nafta right because they don't want to send their shit overseas um and so it's a business and then those judges in the states who got sentenced to like 30 years in prison for illegally sentencing kids to their for-profit prison buddies so they could get kickbacks like just monstrous shit like that what's the canadian situation like if you happen to know um like how are our prisons are run are there segments of our prison systems that are corporatized or is it the whole thing like how does that work um, so there's been an ushering in of private interests um, into jails and prisons. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not quite at the level of what you've described, where it is an actual profitable cycle, um, as far as I'm aware. 
Um, I don't know. I, I, I would imagine actually that there are analogous things where, you know, there are jobs to be done and it's outsourced and the wages are low, uh, all of that. Um, I don't have specific knowledge or examples. Um, but, you know, there was a report released today uh, just on, on the disproportionate representation of Black and Indigenous people in the prison system. Um, and, you know, it, that, that's been the case forever, as far as I'm aware. Um, and, and there's no real reason for us to have as big a prison population as we do. Uh, I'm of the view that only serious crimes should be charged. Uh, a lot of stuff clogs up the system, but it's just a waste. Um, and I don't think our current system provides real opportunities for rehabilitation. Uh, most people leave and come out worse than before. Uh, so like that's when a failing and we just keep pouring money into a system that's failing because it's profitable and there are a lot of jobs on the line. So it's, you know, the system is vested in perpetuating itself as it is because there are people who profit from it. Like, does it require political courage or political will to like draft legislation that says if you run a prison and that one of the inmates that is under your care gets raped or murdered in that prison, your prison's in trouble. Like if you can't stop. It should absolutely be the case. It's, it's like wild that, you know, and, and it's really like we have prison. Like, is that too idealistic? It's, Sorry. I didn't mean to no, interrupt. But I don't it, think so at all. Um, in, in fact, the state has a duty of care um, that it routinely fails to meet, but you know, good luck getting documentation, good luck, you know, getting a civil lawyer, like it, it can happen, but it's the, the power balance is so skewed. Um, and, and I don't know why there isn't that impetus. I would suspect it's in part because the public opinion, you know, is, is quite regressive. Um, and whether people like to admit it or not, there's a thirst for vengeance and punishment and, and we shouldn't be indulging that, yeah. but we do. I think the only people that have a right to vigilante justice are like parents of murdered kids, you know, stuff like that. And I'm not even saying that it should be organized by the state, but I saw a clip once of this guy who was this perp who was being walked in an airport. It was like the eighties or something. And there was a guy on the phone. And as the detectives were walking sort of like behind this guy like that, the guy turned around and blew the, the guy who was kind of, he blew his head off. Horrible. But it was the father of the kid that that guy killed. Yeah, so I'm fine with that. Like, like, but it has to be that guy. It has to be like a parent. It can't just be some guy just vigilante, you know, like uh, I think I, if we I mean, like inject our society with some gladiator traditions or something I think we might be onto something. We need to create a political system, okay? For the first time, I'm just time waiting in for this years. to be clipped and then weaponized as like lawyer on show calls for can vigilance. I, can I get paid for it? <laughs> I really need the money. It's like the Canadian Anti Hate Network is going to watch this fucking stream and then we're radicalized now, James. I talked um, to somebody the other night um, who told me uh, on the podcast. I won't mention who it was, um, but. Who, who told me, um, oh shit, 
what what did you just say before that? Sorry, now I'm starting to feel like the edibles kicking. But what... um, that that would be taken out of context and and used as proof of our plans to radicalize society. Yeah. Anti-hate. Tammy said Tammy Roberts said something on the show that touched on that the other day, and I was just trying to figure out what it was because. Uh, yeah, um, I can't remember, but yeah, I probably shouldn't. I, I didn't watch that interview. Um, other people did, and they told me that it, it was interesting. I felt like I froze up. I don't know if you watched it, but I felt like I kind of froze up, and I didn't really. I, I but I don't know because I don't watch any podcast anymore. Um, but um, she has a she had she had a very interesting way of discussing the topic that we were discussing. Mm-hmm. Um. And I, I, you know, I found it, uh, I found it a little confusing. Anyways, I'm going to get off that. Um, We're probably going to wrap now, actually, because it's, you know, we're an hour and 11 minutes in. Um, It kind of went in uh, in a direction I wasn't expecting to go in. I didn't know we talked about weed for an hour. That was awesome. Um, I love having something, even if it's like just a little morsel uh, in common with you regarding advocacy in that, in that realm, even though I just did it for the money. Um, (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it's uh you no, know, you got paid to do good work. I got paid Pains to literally like I got not only that, I got paid to talk to the president of advocacy companies and totally using vernacular and slang because uh, I was just being myself and like yelling at them, like if you want fucking weed, you gotta tell your members to fucking email the like literally that was my pitch like a hundred times to all these little groups. I had the time of my life. I thought it was great. I interviewed all these like people. Stefan Dion was like, no, of course not. We should definitely not legalize marijuana, whatever. However, Stefan Dion says, I don't know what the fuck that accent was, but, um, you know, and, 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 uh, and then Paul Martin was like, Oh, uh, I, I think that uh, studies need to happen. <laughs> it's just, they're so afraid to touch it. And then I go up to uh, Michael Ignatieff and he's just like, yeah, yeah, we should. And he was the one that just lost the election by like a million points. So everyone's just like, oh, there goes Iggy. You know, it was a weird time. It, it was a really strange time that the way it all kind of came together. And I got to tell you, I miss the dopamine rush of of smoking something illegal and feeling a little bit like a rebel. You know, like I, I, I kind of miss that. Now it's like the fashionization of weed. capitalism ruins everything i think we can land on that conclusion and it's accurate yeah prisons cannabis all of it sex like think about it like it literally ruins everything you know like it it it, it, yeah i don't know homemade from scratch whether it's cookies or sex cream asad thank you very much for joining us i appreciate it (laughs) bye (laughs) we'll see you soon okay bye just before we went on air um, I confess to Karima that uh, although normally I don't, uh, at seven thirty I was like, I'm not. I realized I wasn't doing a podcast. No, it was like six thirty, and so I did uh, like thirty milligrams of edibles. And then I was like, I'm gonna call Karima and see what she's up to. And I was like, Do you want to do the show? She's like, Yeah. I'm like, Okay. Um, Karima, would you mind smoking a bowl before the show so that you're stoned too? She's like, Okay. So that was a conversation between two people that were quite high. And I think we did pretty fucking good. <laughs> I think we we stayed within the law. It was marijuana. It is legal. I laughed at my own jokes a little bit. I literally forgot what I was talking about in the middle of three separate sentences there and couldn't find my way back. Just kept going. I don't care how it looked. 
My big thanks to Kareem Asad. I appreciate you coming on the show today. And we have uh, Jeffrey Perlman coming on the show tomorrow. Jeffrey Perlman is the author of The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. It's a phenomenal book. And uh, yeah, he's written nine bestsellers. Uh, so he's mostly a sports biographer. Uh, his uh, his book Showtime was turned into that that series about the Los Angeles Lakers. Um, I think it's on. I think it's on Showtime. I could be wrong. Amazon maybe. Anyways, he's a really good author. So he'll be on tomorrow. And I think that's it uh, for this week. I don't think I'm doing a show Friday, but we will see you next time. Hopefully, on Black Ball. Black Ball. Black 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 Ball. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Do did will the story of people podcast is now available on the crier media network the first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories ready tara sloan from the san jose sharks undercurrent podcast at nbc sports marianne iveson from iveson voice and the let's take this outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network.